you can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. And we are um, doing a two-for-one deal today because we already tried this. Remember seeing Jesus in 2020? If you were here at that time, that was kind of the thing. And 2020 started and nobody wanted to see anything in 2020 anymore. And so we kind of went to the Calvary Underground theme and, you know, we went through James and Seven Letters of Seven Churches and things that kind of maybe gave us some comfort and maybe refocus during the crazy time that we were going through. And, um, Mostly for the radio program, honestly, to be honest, that's what why we stopped doing the, the Gospel of Luke. But now we're going to pick it back up. So today we're doing something new. Um, and our new title, a new theme, you're going to be seeing the new bumper come out, is the Uncommon Gospel, Studies in the Gospel of Luke. And, and uncommon because Luke was uncommon. Maybe considered by the Jews of his day to be common because he was a Gentile, and honestly the only Gentile who wrote in the New Testament. And so kind of a unique gospel um, written by a Gentile. Of course, Luke is the only writer of, the, of anything in the, in the New Testament. And so he wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. But um, we're going to see the gospel from eyewitness account and Luke's, um, Luke's perspective. And, and such a beautiful thing as we look at it. But today, two for one. Luke chapter one, verses one through, that's right, 80. Because I did five sermons last time. You can go back and look on, the, on our media page and you can see the five sermons I did and you can go through and listen to those if you want a more detailed account. But we're going to do a bird's eye view, kind of a Christmas viewpoint of Luke chapter 1, 1 through 80. And it is a two for one to deal today. And, and I'm all about getting a deal. If you know me, I love the deal. I, you know, retail is for the rich. I love to go to the second stores like Ross and, and, uh, Burlington Coat Factory. In fact, I got these $80 pair of Converse for 25 bucks. That is my love language right there. That is what makes me feel happy inside. And I, and I love a good deal. Although sometimes deals are not exactly what they are cracked up to be. Um, I just think back to my childhood. You know, unexpected, you know, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, but I, I, went back, I think back to my childhood and um, I remember my parents bought this goat and, and that goat would be the, the source of nutrition and weird-tasting milk for my childhood. But that goat was, was not what it seemed. You know, we got Gertie, and she was just one goat, but then she had Butch. And that was unexpected. I don't know if my parents knew that she was pregnant, but she was, and she had Butch not long after. And then Butch grew up, and, and I wish I could say that the, the story ended there, because then it gets uncomfortable. All of a sudden, Gertie's pregnant again. No other goats involved, just her and Butch. And, and then she has Nanny, and then Nanny grows up and she gets pregnant, and we called those goats, because they were twins, Cousin and It. <laughs> and pretty soon, and Butch was the only boy, it was all girls being born, but Butch was the only boy, and pretty soon we had a herd of goats. One goat, you, you end up with a flock of goats. It's crazy, crazy stuff. Um, and, and I think probably as we look at our at our passage today, we're going to see a two-for-one, two babies born, um, well, one prom- two babies promised, one born, as we look at this passage today, and, and it's very unexpected for what um, Elizabeth, what Mary would be expecting. So if you'll stand with me, we are in Luke chapter 1, I'm not going to read all 80 verses, we'll just, we'll just take a few here and then we'll, we'll pray and sit. In Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. And the word of the Lord it says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had a perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things which you were instructed. And Father, we thank you for this passage, Lord, and this um, chapter, Lord, that we're going to be looking at today, Lord. Just the, the implications for this time of year and Christmas and the season that we're in. I pray that you would just um, speak to our hearts, Lord. That we would have ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to us, Lord, concerning these things. And the time of year we live in and the, and the, the season that we're in, Lord. Just the strangeness of, of this world right now. Lord, that we would look at it with eyes of faith and not with eyes of fear that we would see things the way that they truly are and not the way that the world depicts them to be. Lord, just thank you so much for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. You may be seated. And so looking at this book, it starts out with Luke talking about his eye or his understanding of, of the things from the very beginning. And, and of course, Luke was a historian. Um, Paul also tells us that he was a physician. Probably um, he was um, in those days, the physicians weren't necessarily somebody who went to school and became a doctor and lived in a big house. They were usually well-trained slaves in wealthy people's houses, and they had their personal family physician oftentimes. They started out as a slave, they had a good aptitude, and so they sent them to school to become a doctor. And so it's possible that Luke was a slave, we don't know, but we do know that he was Paul's traveling companion, going with Paul, starting in Philippi and traveling around with him, and then later going and finding these eyewitnesses, Mary and others, who could give him their perspective. And so Luke would be the one gospel, and kind of uncommon in that it was written by a Gentile, but also that it was written by a conglomeration of eyewitnesses that he would gather and then write out as a historian, write this out. Now, when you look at the other gospels, you think of, you know, of course, Matthew is written by Matthew or Levi, the, the tax collector who became an apostle. And so it, he's the only <clears throat> namesake of the synoptic gospels that was actually an apostle. And then you have Mark, who was, um, wrote the second, what, they, what we call the synoptic gospels, I mean they're um, synonymous, whatever, I can't say that word, but they're like each other. Right? The, three, the, the first three, they follow kind of the same storyline. Mark was not an apostle, but he wrote things from Peter's perspective and what we understand. And so um, first one's Matthew, second one's Mark from Peter's perspective, third one would be Luke from the Gentiles' perspective, eyewitness accounts, and then lastly, John, which is not a synoptic gospel. John is more of a conglomeration of stories that he puts together as he um, writes his, his epistle. And of course, he was also an apostle. But he's writing this letter to a man by the name of Theophilus. Now, if you understand um, the, the Greek, Theo is God, and phileo is love, and Theophilus is the lover of God, and that's what his name was. And we don't know who this man was. Some would suggest he was a friend of Luke. Others would suggest he was Luke's owner, as, as he was Luke, Luke was his slave. We know that he was somebody of important, um, import because he, he had an, a title. And when Luke addresses him as the most excellent Theophilus, he was ba basically telling us that this is a man who had an office in the Roman Empire of some kind, and that's why you would call him most excellent. Um, other people would say, and some would suggest, I think it was Chuck Missler who suggested that he possibly could have been Paul's defense team or his defense attorney. And that's possible because you know that Luke was hanging out with Paul and Paul was standing before the government and Luke was there often with him and it would it'd be necessary for him to kind of lay out the case as to why he became a Christian and why that's important to him. And so to start at the beginning and lay everything out concerning Jesus would be important. We don't know. We do know that um, Luke never says anything unkind about a Roman official or a centurion. They were all good guys in his account. So I don't know if there's um, something to that. Probably not. Anyway, so he's writing to Theophilus, and it says in verse 5, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, of the division of Abijah. His wife was the daughter of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. And so Luke, he starts out with Zacharias and Elizabeth, Zacharias the priest. Of course, they're, they're all from the tribe of Levi. And of course, Aaron was from the tribe of Levi, Levi. And all priests were from the family of Aaron. So in order, to be a, in order to be a priest, you had to have Levi genes, but you also had to have, you know, um, you had to be from the line of Aaron. And so both of them were. And there was some different different um, families that they were all a part of, and Zacharias was from the family of Abijah, who was also one of the sons or the descendants of Aaron. But I love the meaning of their names when you look at this passage. Zac, or Zacharias, means the Lord has remembered, and Elizabeth means God has promised. So, so here's, here's a couple who's well advanced in years. They have no children, and their names... I mean, the Lord has remembered and God has promised. Apparently, they were barren because Elizabeth couldn't conceive. 
and they were well advanced in years. Now, this, this tells us something about Zacharias, because in that day, there was a popular teaching by Rabbi Hillel, and it was the, by, by far the prominent teaching, um, and it was um, kind of more prominent and more favored by the people of that day than that of Shimei. And what Rabbi Hillel taught was that if you didn't like your wife or she did something that you found, she found no favor in your sight at all for any purpose, you could divorce her. And so there was just this, this idea, and especially when a woman was not able to bear you a child, an offspring, she would be considered by the people cursed by God. There must be some sin in her life as to why she's not able to bear a son. And so Zacharias, with full support of everyone around him, and nobody would think twice about thinking he did the right thing, that he would normally, in this circumstance, just divorce her. Just divorce her and move on to someone else who can give him a child, and especially a son. But this tells us something about the character of Zacharias. Not only did he, no doubt, love his wife, but he took the vows that he made to this woman very seriously. And so even though things were not going the way that he'd hoped, and even though his prayers had not been answered, and even though you know, the, the people would have thought you know, there's something wrong with Elizabeth, you know, obviously there's some, something wrong in her life, this suffering would put him in a place that would make him ripe for God's use. And I think that that's something that we need to consider as a, as a church family, that the suffering that we go through and the difficulties that we face oftentimes are in preparation are in mature maturation of us as Christians so that we might be meet for the master's hands or prepared to be used by the master. In verse 8 it says, So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord, and the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. This is beautiful. It's a beautiful scene. The priest, somebody's chosen, the priest goes in, and all the people are outside, and they're praying. The incense, of course. You know, let our prayers rise like incense. May they be to you like sweet perfume. You know, these, these things that we, we even sing. And we think about the, the idea that the prayers, um, the, or the incense, rather, represents the prayers of the saints. We see that in the, in the heavenly scene in Revelation. And so the idea was everybody would come together and as, as the man would go in to light the incense, the priest would go in to light the incense as the smoke rose, the people would pray and believe that the sweet-smelling aroma was, was their prayers lifting to the nostrils of God and he would hear their prayers and answer them. And they would be waiting out there, out in the courtyard. They'd be waiting for the priest to go in and come out and then he would come and he'd pronounce that blessing upon the people, that blessing that they did every day and the people were there just to be blessed as, as he would say, as, as it says in Numbers chapter 6, verse 24, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you, the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. This was what the priest would bless the people, and that's what the Lord said, you shall bless the people in this way. And so they were there for a blessing, everybody waiting, and, and it tells us that he was chosen to burn incense, chosen by lot or lottery. That's how they would choose somebody to burn incense. And if, if you know anything about the priestly line, he, he was in the course of Abijah. There was 12, it says in First Chronicles chapter 24, that there were 24 courses of priests. So 24 different families that were chosen. And every month there was one of those families who would, cho would be chosen to, in order, to, to serve for a month within the temple. So which means that every priest in their family would now have an opportunity once every two years to serve for one month in the temple. And you can imagine having a job like that, you know. You work one month every two years, got the rest of the time off. Well, that was the situation, and they finds himself this time, his month to serve, it means that they'd probably only get about 20 times that they'd actually get to serve within the temple. And really, it was kind of scarce because you think about, there was 18,000 priests during this time. And if you do the math, the average line or the average course would have about 750 men who would be serving. And so, and some of them probably bigger and some of them smaller, 
Now, everybody would get a chance in that 30 days or so to serve somewhere, but they might just be cutting meat. <laughs> you know, they might just be doing something nominal where other people get more important jobs. And the most favorite of all the jobs of, of the course of the priests that they would do would be to go before the Lord in the presence of the Lord to take the incense away and to put the new incense on the altar and to light it and allow that smoke to begin to rise. They would say a quick prayer. The idea was they'd go in there quickly, they'd utter their prayer, and, and, and there was a, a saying, let your words be few. He is God in heaven, you are just on earth. Let your words be few. They'd utter a quick prayer. It wasn't a long, lengthy thing, then they'd come right out. Kind of a, a, a terrifying thing to be in the presence of a living God. But what an honor. The lot would be drawn, drawn for him to do it. Now this is another interesting thing to think about. It tells us he was well stricken, or that's what the King James says, well advanced in years. Which means that it's possible by the next two years he would be the age of retirement and no longer have the opportunity to serve in the temple. Now he would be tasked to train new priests rather than to serve within the temple. So he's right on the edge of that, that time frame. And he's never done the incense thing before. And we know that because you can only do it once in a lifetime. And what they would do is they would, each day of that course, they would, they'd get the guys together, they'd pull out the lots, and they'd say, everyone who is new, come forward. And so if you were new, meaning you never burned incense before, you would come forward and they cast lots, and each day a person would be chosen. So only 30 people during the course of that time would get chosen. And there's Zacharias thinking, maybe I'm never going to get chosen. Maybe I'll never get to do this. And his lot was drawn. He won the lottery. He was excited. And so, it says, in verse 11, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him. So he's up there burning the altar. The angel of the Lord appears to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zacharias saw him. He was troubled and fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall ne drink neither wine nor strong drink, meaning he will be a Nazarite. He will, also, he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. We'll see that in a little bit. And, we will, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will, also, he will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So he's, he's quoting Malachi, the very last chapter of the Old Testament, and he's also quoting Isaiah 40 as he, he describes what John's ministry is going to be. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. So this day is just full of surprises. First he gets chosen, the lottery is on, falls on him, he gets to burn incense, and now he's at incense, and all of a sudden there's, there's Gabriel, hey, you know, and holding balloons, you're going to be a daddy. <laughs> Not what he expected, but definitely two for one. I think that the angel was kind of expecting a different response from John. He was expecting to say, thank you, or I've been waiting, or, or something. But instead, Zacharias, it was, I mean, a different response from Zacharias, but Zacharias was afraid and confused by this. He protested to the angel, how can this be? I'm old, and my wife, well, she's well advanced in years. Again, the King James says, well, stricken. I'm old, but she's stricken. <laughs> but he wouldn't believe. He wouldn't believe. He was in the privacy of the, you know, whatever. Verse 19. And the angel answered and said to him, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. You're not messing. I'm not bringing somebody else's message. I, am, I stand in God's presence. These are words from God himself, Zacharias. But behold... You will be mute and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be, will be fulfilled in their own time. The moral of the story is, be careful what you pray for. You may just get it, and maybe a little bit later than you thought. 
Gabriel could see the heart of Zacharias. He was doubting. He was, he was not believing. I think it's interesting that even though he was doubting and not believing, God's will and God's purpose is going to go forward. And I think that that's true for us too. When, when God says something, when God determines to do something, he's not held back by us whatsoever. We may miss out on some blessing. We may get struck dumb. But we're not, we're, he, we're, not gonna, we're not going to obstruct the work of God. God is going to do what he wants to do, and so it is in this case. It's almost like he's saying, you know, how, how are these things going to be? Gabriel interprets that, and no doubt Gabriel knows his heart and his motivation. In other words, prove it. Prove it. He's like, okay, I'll prove it. Strikes him dumb. You know, can't say anything. That's, that's pretty big for a preacher. Verse 21. The people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned them to remain beckoned them to, um, and remain speechless. So they're waiting outside. They want this blessing. They're so excited that he's been in there a long time. They're anticipating something's happened, something unusual. Usually they're in there and they're out of there. They're not going to linger in there in the presence of God. They're going to come out quickly and he's lingering. What's going on? Is he seeing a vision? Does he have... And so the anticipation is even higher. But then when he comes out, he does this Charlie Chaplin thing, you know? I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly what he did, but he did something, you know, beckoning them with his hands. So it was, as soon as the days of his service, 23, so it was as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. So one, one month of service is over. It's, it had been a weird month, you know, not being able to speak. You know, we don't know when, he, when his lot fell on him, if it was towards the end or towards the beginning. But whatever the case, he's mute this entire time. And then he goes home. Verse 24, now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and she hid herself five months. Now this is interesting. She's waited all this time. She gets pregnant. She doesn't go right out and show everybody. Now you got to understand, she's got to be a little bit gun shy. Uh, we do that too. You know, I think that when we get pregnant, you know, you, you and your wife or you, you know, you get pregnant and you're waiting because you don't know that first trimester's it's, it's, it could go either way. You know that. And so you wait. She waits a full five months before she shows herself, saying, and this is why, and this is interesting, thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. My reproach among people. Fascinating to me, Zacharias is unbelieving and afraid. Elizabeth is overjoyed. You know, it's not like she's like, oh man, I'm like 75. I don't know that I want to do this at this age. <laughs> no, the pain of the reproach that she's experienced among people has caused her to realize that this is a blessing. What's sad to me and what, what breaks my heart is the people. People had made her feel that she was broken. They may have accused her of sin. Well, if you just got right before the Lord, then your womb would open. Here's the thing God had a womb reserved for a specific purpose and a specific time. And it wasn't time yet. She was blessed. The Bible tells us that her and her husband, they were righteous before God. They did all the things that pleased the Lord. And it was because of that, because of her righteousness before the Lord, that she was experiencing what everybody else thought was a reproach and a curse. Isn't that interesting? by virtue of the fact that her husband was upright, that he wouldn't put her away because she couldn't bear a son, and that she was patiently waiting and loving and serving the Lord, that the Lord would bless her beyond what she could have ever been blessed if she just had a normal child in her 20s like everybody else or earlier in their day. But Gabe isn't done. 
There's more. Remember, it's two for one. Verse 26, it says, Now the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. I wonder how Gabriel felt just he, if he enjoyed just going around scaring everybody all the time. We have somebody in the office who likes to go around scaring people all the time, and he is no angel. Well, maybe he is. <laughs> and we can't scare him because if we do, there's health concerns, right? Just not fair. Maybe you know who I'm talking about, but I won't mention Lyle's name. <laughs> he also doesn't like it when I call him out in sermons, so just makes things all the more fun. But, but he tells this young girl, hey, you're highly favored, blessed among women. And, and she's like, wait a minute, what are you trying to sell? <laughs> what are you trying to say here? She wondered what manner of greeting this was. What in the world is that supposed to mean? And, and it's strange to her because in her humility, she didn't see herself as somebody who was blessed or somebody who should be highly favored. She saw herself for who she was. She was a sinner. She was somebody who needed a savior, somebody who was desperate for, for redemption just like everyone else. She, she didn't say, oh, yes, you have the right address. You know, that's me. Yes, what can I do for you? No, she wondered what manner of greeting this was. And we see this later on as she begins to talk about this. But she was humbled and afraid. Mary didn't really think too much of herself. And we ought, we ought not to think too much of ourselves. In verse 30, it says, Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. She, she probably thought to herself, Okay, he wasn't being sarcastic. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm not in trouble. I, I'm, I found favor with God. That's odd. When my wife and I were about to have our son... It, it, was, it was, you know, it, you've, most of you have heard the story, but it's a long story, so I'm not going to tell the whole story. But something happened in the midst of that. We'd had two prophecies that we were going to have a child. And something happened in the midst of that. And, and one of those things was you know, my wife was at a pastor's wife's retreat, and some ladies were speaking over her about this specific thing. But I was, in those days, tri-vocational. You know, I did my, my pastor job, and, and I didn't get paid for that, but that's okay, because I, you know, have to, you have to support your addiction somehow. So I was doing my ministry, and then on the side, I was cleaning carpets and doing construction. And so I was between those two things. I, I just went and did a bid on a carpet, and I was right there on Cherokee Drive looking at the high school, and I looked up at the stop sign as I slowed down to a stop, and as I stopped, the Lord spoke to me very clearly. And he said, I love you, and you are my son and I'm going to give you a son. And I was, I was just overwhelmed, with, and, and I felt it. Now, what's interesting about that, and I think that I can relate to Mary a little bit because I did not feel worthy of that. I mean, only we, we truly know our own sin, don't we? And that God would say, I love you, and you're my son. And I was, I was filled with the love of the Lord at that moment. You know, I, I think that I, I relate to, I think Spurgeon said something like this, and, and I think Gell Irwin said something along these lines, and, and even C.S. Lewis. But, but that, that idea of, the only thing that makes me question God's character is that he would save me. Because we truly know ourselves, don't we? And, and as we think about ourselves and our hearts and our pride and all the things that is in there that we know this isn't right before the Lord, and, and yet in spite of that, he sent his son to die on the cross for us and to take away our sin, to take away our reproach. If we confess our sins, he's faithful. He means he always will and he's just, which means he legally can forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That we stand before God as perfect in his sight, which is crazy to think about because we know that we don't deserve it, right? As we sing, we, we couldn't earn it, we don't deserve it. Yet he did that for us. So beautiful what God has done for us. And so it says, behold, 
This is Gabriel still talking to Mary. He says, behold, verse 31, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. The, the, the name Jesus, we talked about this a little bit last time, the importance of names. The name Jesus means God is salvation. God is salvation. He will be great and he will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He's going to be, this is what he's saying, he's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the deliverer, a savior, the deliverer, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This had to be a shock. Mary knew what these promises meant. She knew it, and in fact, this was something that every little girl, you know, in our day, and I think probably because of Disney or something like that, you know, we always, you know, when our daughters are little, we always buy them the princess set, you know, has all the princesses. If you have daughters, you know what I'm talking about. And they all want to be a princess. You know, and, and there's got to be one Halloween or one dress-up party where they dress up with a princess as a princess, right? And, and it's just the thing that they grew up wanting to be. Well, in those days, we know from history that what they wanted, every little girl, the desire of women, was to be the mother of the Messiah. To be that one woman who, who would find herself pregnant and that she would bear the one who would save Israel, who would deliver them from the tyranny of the, of the current situation that they were in. And Mary, no doubt, grew up wanting to be the, mother, the mommy of the Messiah as well. We, we see a lot of the things that the, the angel is saying to her in the gospel accounts. Of course, you know he's going to be great. He's going to be the son of the highest. And we see Jesus born and, and claiming that, he, he, that God is his father. That really troubled the religious leaders. And certainly he became great in his ministry and had influence and has, has had a greater influence over the world than any other person who has ever lived. You think about just the Bible, and, and since the invention of the printing press, that the Bible is the number one book, number one seller every year since the beginning of the printing press. In fact, the very first Bible that was, or the very first book that was printed on, on Gutenberg's press was the Bible, the Gutenberg Bible. The most important book, and Jesus being the most important person, the greatest influence on all mankind. And yet he would also sit on the throne of David. But has that happened yet? No, not yet. Jesus would come. He would die upon the cross for our sins. And then we see the fulfillment of what he's going to be in Matthew chapter 25, verses 20, or 31 through 46. The, the, you know, when the Son of Man comes and he sits on his throne of glory, then he will gather the nations together and separate the sheep from the goats. Also in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, we see the same scene. And then, of course, in the Old Testament, Joel chapter 3, verse 11 through 16. As he gathers them to the valley of Jehoshaphat, we, we know that this is going to happen. There's going to be a day when Jesus comes back with all his holy angels with him or with ten thousands of his saints, and he's going to come and he's going to plant his feet on the Mount of Olives, and it's going to split in two. And it's going to cause a great divide. And then he's going to set up a throne in the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of decision, and the earth will be reaped, it tells us in Revelation chapter 14. So what we would know is the horizontal rapture, where the entire earth is reaped and everyone is found standing before the, the throne of Jesus as he begins to divide the nations of those who followed him and those who loved him during the seven-year period of tribulation and those who didn't. Those, well, I guess those who did and those who didn't. I've got my sides mixed up. On the right, he will be the sheep. On the left, he'll be the goats. And of course, at that time, he's going to, he's going to bless these, these sheep. And he's going to say, hey, you've, did, you've done these things to me, and as much as you've done them to the least of these, my brethren. He's speaking of the nation of Israel. You've done them unto me. But then you have a whole other group. And what's interesting to me about this other group is that they're also worshiping a Jesus. By that time, this mystery Babylon religion that will come upon the world will be a, a, a Jesus, a false Jesus-centered worship. Because they say to him, Lord, when did we not do those things? And, and Jesus would even say this in Matthew chapter 7. Many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons and raise the sick, or raise the dead and heal the sick, and do many wonders in your name? And he will say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. 
It's such an interesting thing. And yet within the church even now, there is a rising idea of anti-Semitism and replacement theology where the church is Israel and we're, all the promises of Israel belong to the church and completely ignoring God's promise to his people and not just to his people. In Daniel 9, it says, Daniel, your people and your holy city. Seventy-sevens are determined. There'll be 490 years where God's going to deal with the Jews. And that started on 445 B.C., March 14, 445 B.C., and it ended on April 33, or April 6, 33 A.D., when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. But in that 77s, there was one seven left, or one seven-year period left. 483 years have been fulfilled in Daniel's prophecy, and one seven-year period is left for who? For Daniel's people and Daniel's holy city. Now, God didn't say Israel. Gabriel did not say Israel or the Jews, because then we would say, oh, well, we're spiritual Jews, or we're spiritual Israel. No, it's Daniel's people, Daniel's holy city. Who's that? The literal nation of Israel. And on May 14, 1948, they came back into the land and repossessed the land. And now God has a seven-year period set aside for them where he's going to deal with them specifically. Now, what's interesting about this, as we see us running breakneck speed into the last days, and we know that we're running breakneck speed into the last days because Israel is back in the land again. Ezekiel 37 has been fulfilled. Ezekiel 38 is on the cusp of being fulfilled, where these nations who surround Israel, Israel surround, dwelling in the land surrounded by her enemies, sound familiar? That's what the last days are going to be, it tells us in Ezekiel 38. And in one day, they're going to come against Israel, and God's going to throw them back. And it's, it's around this time, in the last days, when they dwell in the land, that all these things are going to happen. But before that happens, some very important things have to happen. And one is the rapture of the church. Now, I love talking to people about the rapture, and I'm not too offended when somebody says, well, I believe the rapture is going to be in the middle of the tribulation, or I believe the rapture is going to be the end of the tribulation, because at least they believe and understand there is going to be a rapture. We can work out the details on that. What's scary to me is people who think, oh, the kingdom's coming and we're going to make it happen. They're preparing themselves for the end times, and it's, it's a very scary scenario. Because they're not, they're not looking for the glorious coming of Jesus in the rapture and that seven-year period that God pro provided for the nation of Israel. What's going to happen, and what we understand to happen, is that Jesus is going to come back for his church, and then seven years that are determined for Daniel's people and Daniel's holy city will fulfill that we see within the book of Revelation. 1,260 days followed by another 1,260 days, or 42 months, or three and a half years as it's described in those passages. Two periods of three and a half years culminating in a one-peace one treaty that's, that's confirmed by the Antichrist for many nations with the land of Israel and the people. Why does the rapture have to happen before the tribulation? It's very simple. If the rapture happens in the middle of the tribulation, then we have a problem when it comes to the, the nation of Israel when, you know, when Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, he talks about if you're on your rooftop, don't go back down and flee to the mountains. When you see the abomination of desolation, which is going to happen in the middle, right? That's what Daniel tells us. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians. And that's what Jesus tells us. When you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, let him who read understand, flee to the mountains. Don't go back in your house. Don't go into your roof, off your rooftop. Go directly. Don't go back from your field. Go directly to the mountains. We believe because of an Old Testament passage, they're going to go to a place called Selah, which is um, Petra, the rock city. And so they'll flee there. God will protect them there for three and a half years. Revelation chapter 12 tells us. He's going to protect them there for three and a half years. If the rapture happens in the middle, you have to understand this. By that time, the Jews are going to be saved because they're going to be obeying Jesus. They're not going to have all the church stuff worked out, but they're going to put their faith in Jesus sometime in that first three and a half years when the 144,000 witnesses are going throughout all the earth. They're going to flee. If, they were raptured, if the rapture happened then, then they would be raptured. But no, God says he's going to protect them there for three and a half years until the end, right? And then you have um, the Satan who, who is trying to get them. You know, the earth helped the, the woman, Israel, 
And then he went to war against her offspring, which is who? Those who were saved of all the nations from the 144,000 Jew, Jewish witnesses who go throughout all the earth to, to share the gospel. So then they're there for three and a half years, and then at the end, Jesus comes back. Now, some people say, well, the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation. Why doesn't that work? Because if Jesus were to reap the earth at the end, and he, he would bring everybody to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, if he raptured them, then they'd come back with him. And now you don't have any sheep. You just have the goats. And he casts them in the lake of fire, and then he's like, okay, I guess that's it. But no, the earth is going to be repopulated. There'll be people who did not get raptured who will be on the earth as humans who will enter the kingdom, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for them from the foundation of the world. The Jewish nation and all those nations who obeyed God. And they will be there to populate the earth during the millennial kingdom. So it's very important that we understand the order of these things that Jesus has to rapture the church before otherwise there's nobody to enter the kingdom. The Jews will definitely not be there to enter the kingdom that was prepared before the foundation of the world um, that Jesus promises to us in Matthew chapter 25. Why is this all important? Because when Jesus came the first time, they didn't recognize him. They weren't ready for him. And Paul tells us in Titus chapter 2 verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is going to deliver us, it tells us in 1 Thessalonians, from the wrath to come. In Luke chapter 21, when Jesus describes the whole end time scenario, he goes through every detail of what's going to happen, the beginning of sorrows and, and the end of the age. And he says, pray that you are worthy. In Luke chapter 21, at the very end, he says, pray that you are worthy to escape all of these things and stand before the Son of Man. What would you rather do, go through the tribulation or escape all these things and stand before the Son of Man? Sounds a little bit better to me to escape, right? Praise the Lord. Verse 34, then, the angel said to, or then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? An important detail. And I have never, I've never, how am I going to have a baby? Um, another problem is that Mary was betrothed, and we saw that in verse 27. She's um, betrothed to the man Joseph, which means that she's legally married. In those days, they'd put up a hoopah next to the, it's a little... Um, that four, four, four boys with uh, poles would hold up this little canopy and they'd go underneath this canopy near the city gate and they would make this exchange. The man would bring a bride price, something valuable as a dowry. Basically, if he died or, or something went wrong, she could live off the dowry, but it would be a gift to her father. And in a way, tokening, saying, thank you for raising my wife. You've done a great job. Here's the dowry. But also, this is what she would live on if she had to. So it belonged to her, but it also belonged to the father in kind of a weird way. And, and he would say, I'm offering this as the bride price for this woman. And he, the father would accept it. And then he would pour a glass of wine and he would hand it to her. And if she drank it, then she accepted his proposal. They were legally married. And then he would go off to prepare a place for her. And it would take him about a year to prepare a place. Only his father would have to approve when the house was done or the lean-to was done off the side of the house, and he would say, go get your bride at an hour. He didn't expect in an hour, she didn't expect. No man knew the day or the hour except for the father. And he would send the, the son to go get the bride, and usually in the middle of the night, just to make it interesting, and the, the bridegroom would go in front blowing a trumpet, yelling loudly, the, the bridegroom is coming, and she would get out and trim her lamp, and she'd prepare herself and go out and meet him, and he would take her. They'd, they'd put her on this little um, platform, and they'd lift her up into the air, and they'd take her to the wedding chamber, and there she would be with him. It's a picture of, of Jesus' promise to us, the, the word the bride, and the rapture of the church, and the, and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Beautiful picture. We see there in, in, the, book, uh, um, or in, in the book of Matthew chapter 24 and, and other places, John chapter 14. And, and so she was betrothed to Joseph, meaning she was legally married, but they'd never consummated the marriage because he's off building this lean-to. She says almost the same thing. I don't know if you noticed this, but she says almost the same thing that Zacharias said. Do you notice that? How can this be? Remember, he said, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And as you remember, he was rebuked and made mute for his lack of belief. Apparently, her heart is different, even though she says almost the same thing. She doesn't doubt, but is curious about the logistics. 
So how's this going to go down? I've never been with a man. Do you mean that I'm going to, I'm going to go through the, the marriage ceremony of Joseph and then I'm going to have a son? Or is this going to happen somehow weirdly before that? Because that could be a problem. And, and so she wants to know what this is going to look like. Verse 35, And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is to be born to you will be called the Son of God. Now, you can't argue that the Bible teaches the virgin birth of Mary. Um, you know, I know that some people say that, that, you know, Bible doesn't say that Mary was really a virgin, but certainly it does. In fact, Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 tells us, Therefore the Lord himself will give a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, the word he uses for virgin there can also mean young maiden, not married, And so some will say, well, it doesn't mean virgin. Well, why would it be a big deal for a woman to have a baby? No, it's a big deal when a virgin, a sign is when a virgin conceives, right? And Emmanuel means God with us, meaning that Jesus is God who is with us. This would be a lot for Mary to take in. Could you imagine being a woman who would carry not just the Messiah, but God in her womb? (laughs) Well, she's still a virgin, The Holy Spirit would place the Son of God as an egg inside of her. It's a lot to get your head around. Just think about the implications of that. But he doesn't just leave it at that and say, okay, good luck. You know, wait, I still have questions. (laughs) I want to ask ask a few things. No, he he does something beautiful for her, encouragement for her in verse 36. He says, now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. So, Elizabeth um, has come out of hiding a month earlier, because it's six months now. She, she hid herself for five months. Now she's been out for a month. And so no doubt, as news travels, news has gotten to Mary, and now she knows, oh yeah, I heard about that. That old you know, um, aunt of mine, or whatever, a relative of mine, she's also pregnant. And this, this would be a, a comfort to Mary. No, notice the angel says, he even says it, she who is called barren. By whom? Verse 25, the people. The people called her of that barren woman. You know the barren woman, Elizabeth? Mary, on the other hand, was a young virgin who probably was considered a sweet, a young, a sweet young, innocent little lady who is now going to be pregnant. And so her, her pregnancy didn't take her reproach. Her pregnancy probably caused her reproach, kind of on the opposite ends of things. A few things we can observe from this. People are going to tr- talk trash. Don't be afraid of that. And don't be a part of it. If somebody wants to talk trash, stay out of it. You know, people usually are wrong. And don't let that keep you from following Jesus. Remember, they hate him and that's why they talk. Or their, or their heart is not right before him and that's why they talk. And then he says, verse 37, for with God nothing shall be, will be impossible. I think that's a word for us today. And we maybe feel completely burdened and in the dark, um, all that's happening in our lives. And, and, and yet those moments when we forget that God is in control and we begin to fear, we need to remember that with God all things are possible. You know, I think about all that we're ha- that's going on today. And I, I get in a lot of conversations, and sometimes I'm part of the problem and not the solution when it comes to these conversations, and those who know me most will tell you that. But we start to, you know, talk bitterly about everything. So, did you hear this and did you hear that? You know? In fact, I was just telling Jason something right before, and now I'm convicted. <laughs> did you hear what the Boise mayor was doing? You know, I mean, just, I mean, just like, what in the world? You know, and you, you start to get into this. And, and I think sometimes as, as we, we, we say these things, we're like, I can't believe it. We're kind of like the two men on the road to Emmaus, aren't we? Talking about all these things. And Jesus comes along and is walking with them and listening to them. What are you guys talking about? What things? Are you, what, do you, you live under a rock or something? Well, yeah, just now, but I'm out. Um, <laughs> shouldn't all these things come to pass? They totally missed it. Shouldn't all these things come to pass? The Messiah, and he took them through the Bible and showed them. Don't we, when we look at all that's happening in the world, shouldn't we say that to ourselves? Shouldn't all these things come to pass? I mean, this is what we would say. Oh, it's going to get worse. It's going to, you know, you at the end times, we're heading towards there. And then when it gets bad, we're like, what's going on? 
What, do you live under a rock? Then Mary, verse 38, said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And so um, it says, Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to the city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out loud with, um, with a loud voice saying, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, a babe leaped in my womb for joy. Beautiful. She, she says, let it be according to your will. And then she goes. She, she knew, I'm supposed to go see Elizabeth. She goes down, meets Elizabeth. And Elizabeth says this beautiful thing. She speaks prophecy over this child that she's going to bear, that he's, he's going to be... Um, that she's blessed among women and, and that she's, her, the fruit of her womb is blessed. But then she speaks a word of knowledge as she says, the mother of my Lord has come to visit me. She speaks this word of knowledge. She knows that this baby is her Lord. Sometimes we need this type of confirmation, don't we, in our lives? We go through difficult things. You're going through something horrible and, 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 or maybe a fear's come up and then somebody by the Holy Spirit speaks something into your life that completely calms you. I remember one time I was at a pastor's meeting, a pastor's conference actually, and all these pastors were around. They were, a lot of them were talking about their sons who were prodigals. Well, that wasn't good for a guy to hear when he had one two-year-old son. And I'm just freaking out. I'm like, he's two years old and he's going to leave. He's going to be like these guys, you know? And, and, and I'm just, I always just started freaking out. And I, and I didn't voice that, but it was inside. It was, it was nagging at me. I just had this tremendous fear. My son's going to go off the rails and, you know, and, and, and anxiety about it. For several days, it was satanic, this fear that came upon me. And I was in a prayer meeting. We're just all waiting on the Lord and just waiting for a word from the Lord. And um, Jesse Hurlis came up to me and, and he, he laid his hand on me and he just started to pray for me. And then he just said, you know, Mike, the Lord wants you to know your son's going to be okay. He's going to follow the Lord. And, and he didn't know that. He didn't, and I wouldn't have voiced that because I'm worried my two-year-old son's going to go off the rails. I've been seeing how he looks at those other little girls. And, you know, I mean, I, 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 there's nothing there. I see the way he plays with his toys and, yeah, no. But, but the Lord sometimes gives us these confirmations and they're such a blessing to us. Verse 46, it says, And Mary said, My soul magnified the Lord. This is what we call the magnificent. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. And, and we do, right? Some people take it too far, and some people diminish Mary. We need to find balance in that. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and is holy, and Holy is his name. Now, I also want to point out, notice she said the lowly estate. She, the, that word means the humiliation. You know, the, Mary didn't think highly of herself. And his mercy, verse 50, his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud, the imagination of their heart, in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in the remembrance of his mercy. He has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. We, we know Nazareth was one of the most poor towns. They had no good trade routes. A lot of the women were sold into, into horrible things. And, and, you know, it just was not a, she wasn't from a wealthy family. Nazareth was a very poor community. God picked the poorest. He picked the lowliest. He didn't go to the wealthy. And this is what she's saying, but on a greater level, she's prophesying over what Jesus would become. And in his ministry, he would hum be humble and he would exalt the lowly, but he would bring the proud religious leaders down to their knees. And, and these were the very things that Jesus did that made Mary in her older age question, is this guy legit? You kind of think that he's going to go and make friends with all the religious leaders, maybe set them straight a little bit, but everything's going to be wonderful and, you know, and it's going to exalt me in my position, but she never really did raise up to an exalted position in her lifetime. But it's interesting because she's acknowledging that he, she's bearing the seed, the one that was promised 
in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, also um, that was promised to Abraham. And Mary remained with her about three months. So just before the baby was born, she leaves, maybe not wanting to be in the way or maybe not wanting to see a birth, knowing that she's going to have to go through the same thing. I don't know. You never know what a woman's thinking. Verse 57, now Elizabeth, full time came for her to be delivered and she brought forth a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy, her great, shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. This is the kind of thing that makes me sad, honestly. You look at this, they're, they're there to rejoice with her, but were these the same people when she was going through a hard time of her barrenness? Did they weep with her during those times or did they just talk about her? You know, now that she's having something to celebrate, everybody's over there celebrating with her. But, but Paul tells us, doesn't he tell us that in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? I think that we need to discipline ourselves as Christians to do both. When something good is happening for somebody else and maybe we're going through a time of leanness or a time of difficulty. You know, one of our friends just got a clean bill of health, but we just found out that we had um, cancer. Or, or one of our friends just got a brand new car and we're driving some junk beater that doesn't, you know, hardly make it to, the, to our work and back. To, 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 to make a practice of rejoicing with those who are rejoicing. Many years when my wife and I were barren, it was difficult when our friends got pregnant, when they told us, hey, we're going to have a baby, and we, di we didn't have any babies. And so we made it a discipline to rejoice with them. Because nothing worse than a woman who you know, hides in her room and gets all upset, and, and the people who avoid their friends because they're going through something good. And it kind of steals the joy from the other people who are actually going through something good. And so we need to discipline it, because what we do is when we, when we rejoice with those who rejoice, we open ourselves up for blessing as well. And maybe the opposite is true. You know, maybe you see somebody who's going through a hard time and you're just like, I'm not going to answer their call. Or I see them in the grocery store and like, oh, they're, they're kind of heavy right now because they're going through some stuff and I just don't know how I could deal with that. But to make it a discipline to weep with those who weep. Oh, they're all about rejoicing with her, free food. But did they weep with her when she wept? I, I wonder. Verse 59, so it was on the eighth day, that the day came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to the father that he would have, what he would have called him. And so they make signs. They don't ask him. And now, now they think Elizabeth is dumb and that Zacharias is deaf. Obviously, she doesn't understand what needs to happen here. It seems like everybody knows how to run your life, you know, better than you. So believing Jesus, or excuse me, believing Elizabeth has gone off script, they ask Zacharias, well, what are you going to call him? And so it says in verse 63, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, his name is John. So they all marveled. Hmm, really? She isn't completely dumb. It, it, you know, it's amazing to me about this too. And, and this just, I think that this plays into it. When you have disrespected somebody for so long or looked down on them for so long because of their barrenness or whatever you've looked down on them for, it's hard to switch gears when it comes to that, isn't it? And so they, they have no respect for her. And, and women didn't have a huge voice in those days anyway, but I think this goes beyond that. It says immediately, verse 64, immediately... His mouth was open and his tongue was loose, and he spoke praising God. Then fear came upon all those who dwelt around them, and all the sayings were discussed throughout the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard, they kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Um, <laughs> if, if I had been going through this for nine hard months, not being able to speak, uh, that would be a difficult thing. I don't know if you've ever been through that where you've lost something. You, you couldn't speak or you couldn't... Uh, maybe maybe you're, you're amongst us and you, you lost your taste and smell for a time. Food just isn't the same, right? I mean, it's just like, ugh, to eat that food. And then you just say, well, I'm going to eat something I hate and see what, how that's like. You know, see what the Whatever. You know, I'm going to eat something hot, see what that does. Not too bad. Okay, still burns, you know. But then you get it back, and what a relief it is, right? And you got your, your taste and your smell back. Well, I still have about only 30% of my smell back 
which is actually kind of a blessing. I think I'll, I'd like to stay that way. I will have to you know, discipline myself to take showers and stuff because I can't tell you know, when I'm not presentable. But other than that, it's kind of nice not to smell things, especially when you have a baby in the house and a dog who eats stuff that... Anyway, let's not get into that. It's better not to know. Verse 67, now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the, is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. So again, he's referring to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, um, that, that message where it talks, um, where God says to the serpent, I'm going to put war or enmity between you and the woman and between her seed, your seed and her seed. And her seed, um, the seed of Abraham, the seed always is to the man. The seed of the woman implies a virgin birth. And he will, the, the idea is crush your head. That meaning he's going to destroy the authority that you've taken over the world. He's going to crush that authority. Right now the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to completely crush the, the serpent. He's going to completely kill the enemy. He's already dealt him a blow, but he's going to take his kingdom away. And he will bruise your heel. In other words, Jesus is going to suffer through that. And he suffered on the cross for our sins. And, and then all the other prophecies that came about Jesus and, and all the things in the Old Testament. He's saying all these things are being fulfilled in this son as he, he prophesies about the Messiah. And it's that we, verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Of course, that was Abraham's promise. It's, it's amazing, you look at the Abrahamic covenant, and it's very much like the new covenant. It's before the law, and it's amazing how God promised all those things are going to happen for the nation of Israel, and that's still, again, future. Um, Revelation um, chapter 14, or chapter 12 tells us, Revelation chapter 19, Matthew 25, and many other places. To grant us being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve the Lord with, without fear, verse 75, in holiness and righteousness before him, all the days of our life. So God's promised these things to the nation of Israel, and this is something that will be fulfilled at the end of the age. Again, we say when. When is that going to happen? Jesus said, Matthew chapter 24, no man knows the day or the hour. Only the Father, not even the Son knows. You know, speaking of that marriage ceremony. Only the Father knows. His disciples, in Acts chapter 1, um, they come together and they ask him, Lord, when will you restore the kingdom to Israel? In verse 7 he says, to them, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Well, if it's going to happen during the tribulation, certainly we know the season, don't we? But we don't know the times of the seasons, we don't know the day or the hour. It very well may be, just like the Bible says, that when they say peace and safety, when they're like, okay, it's all over, Corona's gone, everything's wonderful, the world's back the way it's supposed to be, hallelujah, boom, then sudden destruction comes upon them. When Jesus comes back for his church, he tells them to focus on, you shall receive power to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. That's what we're supposed to be doing now, to be his witnesses, to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. So Zacharias, first prophecy about Jesus, but then he turns his attention to his son, verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercies of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us. So he recognizes that the day spring from on high, the Messiah is going to come, he's going to, to visit us, and he, he says, you, son, are going to go before him to prepare his way. Again, um, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. But, but this is one who would not live for himself. He would live for another. I, I'm, not, he, I'm not worthy to unloose his strand, sandal straps. I must decrease, but he must increase. And so we have two babies born, but they're both living for one. It's two for one. And this is what Christmas is about, that, that Jesus is the one who is the greatest gift to all of us. John chapter 3, verse 16, of course you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
Notice verse 79. To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I, I think that's a word for us today. Maybe we feel like we're living or, or sitting in the shadow of death. He's going to bring a marvelous light to us. And, and that's what we have to remember, that he is the light, and he is the reason for the season, and he is still in control, and he is the light. And the darker it gets, the darker the world gets, the brighter that light shines through that darkness, and the greater effect that it has, the greater effect you have. Verse 80, so the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in desert places till the day of his manifestation. Whew, 80 verses. Whew, can you believe it? What I love about this story is not just the clear Christmas anticipation of it, but the fact that something has been set in motion and only the people who are around these two children even have any inkling that something is happening. The rest of the world is still sitting in darkness. The rest of the world is like, what's going on? And yet, in Bethlehem will be born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And very few people will know about it until... 30 years later, when, when John's out in the wilderness, Captain Caveman in it, with his you know, camel hair and leather belt and eating locusts and wild honey and baptizing people in the Jordan, calling them to repent. And then Jesus hangs up his tile in the carpenter shop and goes out and begins to preach to the poor. Begins to preach salvation and repentance and the remission of sin and to turn and to follow. And then he would die for our sins on the cross so that we could have everlasting life. They didn't know it was happening. And nor, nor do we know what's going on right now. We look at the news and we're like, ah. Oh. If you watch CNN, you're terrified. If you watch Fox News, you're terrified. It doesn't matter what you watch. You're like, ah, oh, what's going on? What's true? Nobody knows. You know what's true? I, I found a source of news that's very true. This is all we have, guys. And we, we know that in the end, I read the last, the, the last part of the book, we win. And so we can take, we can take solace in that this Christmas as we put aside everything of the world and we focus on Jesus, the greatest gift. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this word, Lord, that you give us in, in the gospel of Luke. Lord, what a timely thing for us to remember that you are in control and, and that sometimes it's unexpected <laughs> the way that you deliver. And, and I just it amazes me to hear these stories, an old woman bearing a son and then a, a virgin bearing a son and, and yet... Um, to fulfill the ultimate purpose that you have to bring salvation to this world. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that that would be what our minds are fixed on this Christmas season, that we would remember that you came into this world to bring salvation to us, the greatest gift that we could ever possibly imagine, and that we have that gift to give to other people. So help us to be a light for you, Jesus. We thank you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name.